Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turn to issuing proclamations and commands. Your guides for this journey are me, Phil Cly, along with our trusty engineer, Jackie Regasio, and special guest, Mary Gateskill. Unfortunately, Jake was not able to join us. May you continue to be a person. So today we have one of America's finest writers, the revered novelist, essayist, and short story writer Mary Gateskill joining us. She's a favorite of mine. I think her fiction is unapologetic and unflinching, though not unsympathetic in its incredibly precise observations of American life, including corners of American life that are deeply important but often under-discussed. Her essays as well are both elegantly crafted and carefully complexly honest about the most fraught and taboo subjects there are, and it's a real delight to have her on. Our manifesto today is an essay of Mary's called The Trials of the Young. She initially wrote it for Liberty's Journal, which is a fantastic journal, though you can also find it on her substack out of it under the title The Despair of the Young. And in the essay, she uses two writing courses that she taught in different times, each involving troubled young men as a way of exploring changing contemporary attitudes to art, to sexual violence, and to different generations' experiences of the world. It's a complex piece which touches on themes Mary has explored before and allowed for what I felt was a really rich discussion. The art that Mary picked were two songs by Nirvana, Drain You, a sort of upbeat track off of Nirvana's 1991 massive hit album Nevermind, and Moist Vagina, which was supposed to be on their somewhat more difficult and aggressive 1993 album in utero. I was surprised at first to have songs as the art, but especially when I went back and reread Mary's incredible 2005 novel Veronica, which repeatedly discusses the different styles of music that generations listen to and what those generations seem to want the music to express, what the music seemed to promise, what it left unfulfilled. It struck me that Nirvana was a perfect pick. Manifesto is also now sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fairfield's mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach at Fairfield in both their undergraduate English department and in their Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing program. And so we are very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for their sponsorship. Mary Gateskill, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the thing that you're supposed to say. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, Jake couldn't make it. He really wanted to. But we're here to discuss this really fantastic essay of yours, The Trials of the Young, that you published in Liberties. And it's about your experiences on college campuses, doing writing workshops. But to me, it also seemed to be about changing mores and sensitivities around artistic representations of violence, of, uh, of mental illness, of sex. And rather than being a kind of screed against the way that the kids these days are operating, it it looks at two different periods where you had similar circumstances. One from 1997, when you had a student who seemed disturbed who was writing about really violent topics. And then one from more recently. And you talk about not simply um, the work that the students wanted to write, but also the culture around the students and how it either dealt with them or failed to deal with them. 
and it seemed to me and and let me know if if um uh I'm overstepping but when you look at the two different sort of styles of approach towards disturbing material one which is much more accepting one which is much more conscious of safety and trying to protect people it's not that you think one is good and one is bad so much as um they both seem to have failed in both circumstances is that is that fair enough um failed what would be the goal that they failed at <laughs> um adequately addressing the needs of the students i would say well there were there actually were quite different circumstances the yeah. thing they had in common was that um like in one case the the first case mm-hmm. the entire class the guy wasn't out young he was in his 30s i would say yes and this i would say dawn in the essay yes the entire class was afraid of that guy right so if anybody well, I don't know about everybody, but a couple of people approached me afterwards and said they were, one woman said she dreaded walking into the class. She was afraid it was going to, you know, produce a weapon. She actually said she began carrying her gun to class. It was Texas, so right. you, weren't, you weren't supposed to at that time carry guns into the school, but occasionally, I guess, people did. And she started, and I didn't blame her because I could see. But... The other case, I don't think anybody was concerned in the class. I, I think the guy made people uncomfortable, maybe, but and I, but I don't think anyone was actually afraid of him. Um, I wasn't disturbed. In one case, this what was disturbing was what the student was actually writing and presenting to the workshop, his stories. He wasn't sending me emails or communicating with me barely at all, except for making a joke about killing me, um, to me personally. But the other one, the second one, what he wrote, if, if all he did was write things in class, I wouldn't have been bothered by him at all. What, yeah. I, I might have been a little concerned for his well-being, but not what bothered me was the emails he was sending me. Right. Um, well, students often, I mean, sex, sexual violence, rape, death are pretty common, especially I found it with undergrads writing short stories. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a point that you make, um, that with this, uh, later student, in spite of myself, I also had empathy for him because unlike Don, uh, the more troubling student from 1997, I felt that he was trying in his own twisted way to work with something essential. Murder and despair are not bugs, but essential human features. Whereas Don, you describe him as large, silent, pumped up, bald in early middle age who wrote exhaustively, convincingly, and in the first person about a sadistic killer of women. The thing could barely be called a novel, it being rather a series of murder episodes void of character or dramatic tension. And then you write, and the kids loved it. More specifically, (laughs) the girls loved it. I remember the boys looking down nervously while the girls enthused. Maybe we should describe a little bit the circumstances so that the reader will understand it a bit better. Um, I start out um, talking about the current climate and um, generally in campuses. The the school in which I which I wrote about was actually late to adding on things like trigger warnings. In fact, the school sure. that I was writing about didn't you didn't have to do trigger warnings. Some schools you required, but that one no. Um, but sort of this concern for equity, um, extreme sensitivity having to do with race and gender, 
Um, and I start out by spending quite a lot of time saying I think that the un- universities, not just that place, but universities generally, the the um, what I call the corrective apparatus that they have in place is not effective in my mind. Right. I think if people, I know I'm not, a lot of people rail against the stupidity of academia and political correctness, wokeness, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's a reason why those corrective apparatus sure. came into place. I mean, I, I've taught for a long time and the incident that I talk about in 2007 is a case in point. That guy was terrorizing the class, basically. Yeah. Um, even though people, we can talk about this later, behaved as if they loved it. I think they were also scared. Yeah. I, I know they were. And also, I've, I've had experiences of, of really disgusting racial insults. Sure. And like I mentioned, a, a school I taught at, there was some students on the student radio station um, or TV station. It wasn't showing images and making jokes about actual lynching victims, like pictures of people being lynched and treating this as comedy. I mean, I, I, I personally find that pretty horrible. Right. Um, and also situations where even I myself sometimes didn't really know how to handle. I mean, I write in class, anything can come up. And sometimes if racial subjects would come up and it's a majority white class and there's like one black person in the class, I, I wasn't really sure myself how to deal with that Yeah. sometimes. And um, I think a lot of white professors were in that position of simply not aware that there was discomfort on the part of non-white students, but not really quite sure how to make it better. Right. Um, and so I think there's a reason for, you know, all this hyper uh, concern about safety and racial politeness but the means by which their administrations are trying to remedy that are, to me, rigid, clumsy, like all these sensitivity trainings you're supposed to do where you're basically at a training module where you're presented with outcomes of, right. um, is it okay to use the N-word? You know, here's the multiple choice answer. And if you answer it wrong, you can go back and correct it. I mean, you basically get, you're not supposed to use the N-word. You're not supposed to use the C-word. You're not supposed to call somebody a fat pig or an old hag. Great. Um, I mean, if somebody is inclined to be deeply racist or deeply misogynist, I don't think those things are going to make a slightest bit of difference. I think policing people's language, I mean, things like where you're not supposed to read a 200-year-old text that uses the N-word, that's so stupid. It's not. It doesn't help anybody. Or you're not supposed to, I mean, I've had female students in graduate classes be mightily offended because somebody, a male, wrote a character who's noticing, saying for several sentences, how beautiful a woman is. This is objectionable to some people. And I'm just like, how is this helping anything? Um, So I start out with that. Yeah. Then I focus on a particular class that I had um, last semester um, in which I remember somebody telling me, you're going to be dealing with a lot of troubled students. They're Mm -hmm. undergraduates and a lot of kids are suicidal now. And I just kind of inwardly rolled my eyes and was like, I think that's probably exaggerated by the media. Well, I get into that class. There's only eight people. It's small because there's some people who don't want to, who I accepted, who didn't want to take my class. That was okay with me. But gradually it transpired that like half of the class was writing stories about suicide, either their own attempts at suicide or attempts of their friends or actual suicides of their people they knew. And I found that in and of itself 
really disturbing. And then they were also all, almost all of them. Well, I don't want to reveal, I don't want to say too much, but, and it wasn't like they were writing these passive, you know, depressive things. They were very energetic um, stories and anguished stories. And I I felt that very deeply. Um, And I kind of, (laughs) it, it was, it was quite a complex situation, particularly in the backdrop of, you know, all this concern about safety and things you can and can't say at class. And so this guy, one of the students who I focused on, who was very interesting for a lot of reasons, really smart guy, one of the better, best writers in the class. Um, And I don't even think he was giving it his full effort, at least not the second story. He came to me like on the first day of class and wanted to know if it was okay with me if he wrote a story about raping and murdering a little girl and then jerking off on her body in the first person. Right. And like Frank Bedard's Herbert White. <laughs> and in the past, I, you know, I don't know what I would have done if anybody had actually asked me, is it okay if I do this? I probably even 20 years ago would have actually tried to discourage that because not for safety reasons, particularly 20 years ago, but because, because 20 years ago, I was like, people should be able to write about literally anything. Um, it's, it's a fiction workshop. I think a fiction is a place where you get to explore things you would not want to play around with in real life. And I still think that basically, but I think with that kind of subject matter, I mean, putting the corrective apparatus aside for a minute, I I think it's very hard to write about that. Well, yeah. Um, because I, I, my opinion, I don't think, I think very few people, even more experienced, I wouldn't know how to represent that point of view. And I've been writing for a really long time and I'm not unfamiliar with some pretty dark, ugly shit. So, but even I would hesitate because I, I don't, I, it's, I think it's difficult in your imagination to occupy uh, convincingly the psyche of a murderer. Some people can, of course, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at this guy. He's very young. He doesn't, I read his writing samples. He seems very inexperienced, talented. Yes, but very, so I'm just saying I don't, but also there's the corrective apparatus. If I let this happen in class, somebody's going to start, not just somebody, probably several people are going to start screaming. They're going to go to the dean. I'm going to have to right. deal with that. I, there, I, 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 and I said that to him. I, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Um, but also there's this other thing. I think it'd be very hard for you to accurately represent that. And he just was like, no, no, anybody can understand that. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and he started you know, telling me about some really great, intelligent, brilliant serial killer how he could explain why he was the way he was because he hated his mom or some shit like that. And I was like, okay, yeah, I got it on that level. Yes. You can explain it in a certain way, but that's not deep enough for a fictional character. I mean, if he had, if he had told me, I really want to write about this. Can you read this yourself? I might've, and I might've, I mean, honestly, I don't particularly want to read something like that myself. Um, But if I had gotten to know him and I felt he was really sincere in some way, I, I actually probably would have been willing to work with him in that way. But he was, he was kind of erratic. Like he gave me a bunch of stuff he wanted me to read ahead of time. And then I read it and he just kind of disappeared. He just, he said, Oh, I don't really want to talk about that anymore. And I'd read this 20 page thing and made all this effort to market. Anyway, he was, he was kind of erratic, which is why I didn't, it, in a different setting, I might have been like, 
you know, I, I'll, I'm willing to read it privately, but I don't want that stuck in front of the class because I right. just don't want to deal with the fallout. And also, I don't, you know, I don't think I've come to change my mind a little. I don't think it's entirely wrong to have a protective attitude, somewhat protective attitude towards people in class sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're young. It's it's a it's a different space than just out in the world. You're not choosing what you read. If you start to read a hideously, repulsively violent book in just your normal life and you decide you don't want to read it, you can close it. In a workshop, you have to not only read it, but analyze it and discuss it at length. I think I think you're also trying to create a, a productive atmosphere for everyone uh, to be able to, you know, being able to write about that which is most essential to you is a, is a just kind of difficult, naturally vulnerable thing. And you need a certain degree of toughness. I, I do agree with that. But you can't just be throwing that out into an environment that feels really hostile and weird, right? Some workshops are great and some workshops really don't work. And yeah, one person can really skew the dynamic in a class so that people aren't learning as well. And that's just straightforwardly true. And it's not about saying you can't write this or you can't write that. Um, but it's about, you know, the difficulty of, of, of managing a community, a small community that comes together in a kind of intensified and, and, and often vulnerable way, because people are writing about things that are uh, very sometimes anguished for them, right? I mean, yeah. I, 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 every, every year when I teach undergraduates, it's just a lesson for me again and again in how little your assumptions about somebody fit into yeah. the, the, whatever it is that they're actually dealing with in their life. Yeah, it takes a long time to understand something like that. But, that, I mean, the two difference between the two students is Don, the guy back in 97, was... I, I can't really know his motives, but they seemed like just really that he wanted to attract attention to himself and that he was wanted to scare people. Right. He may have had some interest in actually writing. He may have had, I'm, I'm given benefit of the doubt, I'm sure there was something he was trying to work out in those things. And maybe he was sublimating enormous hostility, but he was definitely the difference between, well, I don't know if it was different finally, but he, he, he was really perpetuating the idea that he had really done these things. Right. Um, although when somebody point blank asked him, did you, have you ever really killed anybody? He was like, no, but I've known people who have. And, right. Really? And, um, but he was kind of trying to create this kind of fright, you know, charged atmosphere. The other guy, I, the student I call, uh, called Luke and the, the more recent experience I don't think he was trying to do that. I think he was sincerely wanting to um, explore and portray deep experiences that he connected with, um, that he, he wanted to understand evil yeah. um, in others and perhaps in himself. And it was, it was far more sincere. I, I had quite a lot more respect for him than I did for the other guy. Um, I did not appreciate him sending me these weird emails, which may not have been weird to him. You mm. know, I don't really know. That was the thing. I wasn't sure. I mean, when I showed some of the emails to friends of mine, they were like, she's threatening you. And that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily apparent to me. I didn't, I didn't really know what he was doing. I didn't like it, but I didn't, it was not to me a clear threat. Yeah. You, you note that um, in 
the ethos of the nineties, you know, there's like a lot of great art about terrible people doing terrible things. You've got natural born killers. Gangster rap obviously is huge. Nick Cave's biggest album is murder ballads uh, that comes out during that time. And Don at one point, uh, he tells you that in his original draft, he'd killed the whole class, including the teacher. And you would ask if you could kick him out of the, out of the class. And the administrator says, no. Um, and you wonder now if you get a different response in the more recent event with, um, Luke, you talk to an administrator and they sort of say, well, if we take action, we just kind of haul him before a committee, um, which you didn't think was helpful. And you write, I wonder why the only options were inaction or hauling the student before a committee. I wondered what would happen if he was instead required to sit down with the assistant dean and myself and answer certain questions. What exactly are you thinking? Why are you writing to your old lady professor about young men raping old ladies with whom they are acquainted? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it just sounds funny. <laughs> I didn't suggest this. For the same reason that I didn't respond to that part of the email, I did not want to feed it. But I think a face-to-face sit-down that was not about a personal relationship between him and me, but which involved uni- university personnel, someone supportive, would have been different. It could have been exactly what I think students, not just students, but most people now are missing. Physical engagement requiring that you look the person to whom you are speaking in the eye. And there's, I mean, I think it, it gets down to one of the basic issues with the, the, the quivering apparatus of safety uh, or uh, to attack unhappiness that you talk about, which is that it's ultimately a bureaucratic, less less human kind of exchange. I, I remember years ago having a conversation with uh, a woman who is prosecuting a lot of sex crimes, right? And she was frustrated because a lot of the cases that she was dealing with, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to put this delicately, involved a lot of very, very murky situations, right? Um, some in which she was having less sympathy for the victim. Hmm. Um, and I actually sent her an essay that you had written about acquaintance rape. Um, which she really responded to, which sort of deals with more murky and ambiguous situations. And it resonated with her. One of the things that we discussed after she had read that was that there's this human experience where somebody has actually been wronged. And then there's legal categories that you fit things into that even if they're the right category, don't actually capture the human experience or respond to what the person really needs right. uh, coming out of that. And I feel like on a sort of lower level, that's something that's going on here where there's there's definitely pain and there's definitely anguish. And then there's a system that, because it's systematized in a bureaucracy, is just not sufficient for giving people genuine, really intense human exchange, um, which is something that is really, really difficult to do in a real sense. Yeah. I I mean, I thought myself of having that conversation with Luke, um, but the reason I didn't is because just if it's just him and me, it becomes personal. Right. And in that context, I just didn't particularly want to have a, a, 
that I didn't want to make that a personal connection. Um, whereas if a, if an, an official person and I, this administrator did seem to care about him. Yeah. Um, she apparently had spent time with him. She didn't want to just, you know, default to, you know, blowing a whistle on him. She, so I thought if it was her, um, that might be a situation where it could be a productive conversation. Um, I wish that I had suggested that to her. I don't know if she would have done it. I mean, I don't, how could she, if she didn't even want to see you the email, right? She likes, cause I, I said, you, could I send you this email? And she was like, no. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> cause then she'll have it, to act. And it was, I, I, I think I understand it's probably some legal thing and she probably just didn't want to get some ball rolling, but if she's not even willing to read the email, I can't, how am I going to ask her to have a conversation about it with him? So that's why I didn't do that. But I, I really think that would have been a much better way because I agree. But I don't know that it, I don't think it really would have been warranted to haul him in front of a committee either. I think that could have really just made the situation worse. Um, but I don't think it was OK to just let it go either and act like, you know, it's, you know, because that's not OK. I don't think that is OK to be emailing stuff like that to your professor. Uh, although I've heard of worse. I mean, when I wrote, when I, this thing was published in Liberty, somebody emailed my student. Um, it was a woman, but she said her husband had gotten like, like threat, threatening stories for like students writing about him, murdering him. Yeah. Um, and I've heard of this before. So, you know, Luke's email was really pretty minor, Lukey compared to that. <laughs> but, but, um, I mean, so I think it would have been perfectly reasonable to sit with him and go, look, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Are, are you not aware of how this can be read? When, when I was a student, I was in a workshop and um, a student turned in a story uh, where there was a character named Phil. There was a character, there's a character who sounded a lot like my then girlfriend who was married to a character who seemed an awful lot like the person who put in the story. <laughs> and they, and at the end of the story, the seemingly autobiographical character punched the Phil character in the face, which <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't really sure how to respond to. Yeah. I've, I've heard terrible stories, particularly with young women teachers. So I don't know if you want to hear like, She's sitting there. She's invited her students to her home at the end of the semester for a party. And then the last story this guy turns in is of, you know, be attacking her, tying her up, stripping her, raping her, torturing her, killing her. And then the last line is, I'm in the house right now. Um, now, to me, that's and this, by the way, this, that was in the 90s. The, mm -hmm. Her school didn't take it seriously either. Right. <laughs> The police did, though. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the other interesting thing is, because with the, the 90s story with, with, with Don, you know, the, the women in, in the class are praising it and praising it. And there's one character who's, uh, uh, there's one student who's an older woman who you describe as one of the less cool people in the class. And towards the end, she, uh, she finally says, I'm sick of this shit. It's like porn. And then you say... <laughs> Marjorie raises a valid point. Writing like this creates fear. That is its purpose. In response, every single girl on one side of the room, girls who had been enthusiastically expressing their admiration for Don, turned to me with wide, childishly frightened eyes and mutely nodded their assent. It was astonishing, because just a moment earlier they had rolled their eyes as if what Marjorie had said was beneath them. Their feelings of titillation and fear were that connected and that labile. 
Yeah, I remember that. I remember it so well, even though it's so long time ago, because I, I was really, frankly, I was kind of shocked by their response. Um, and also I was so surprised by that because once somebody said something and it made me feel like an ass because I had not said that it, it took, it took her to come out and say that. Right. Um, and she was really weird too. Everybody in that class was weird. As I, as I noted in the essay, everybody was writing crazy, like super sexual or super. I think the other boys didn't appreciate it as much because they felt outdone. Right. A lot of, a lot of them wrote about murder and <laughs> I don't think any of them wrote about rape, but I think a lot of them, it was a very popular topic for those students in that school, but he just kind of steamrolled over them. I mean, I think they felt like they had been outclassed and, really didn't either that or being boys they they correctly registered that this guy was a problem and they 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 didn't do the feminine thing of sort of giggling and pretending it was okay right right you know and what's interesting is you talk later in the essay about how you know thinking of the culture of the 70s and 80s this is a culture that um really embraced the taboo uh, the the ironic popularity of films such as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or such as, such as the Talking Head Psycho Killer or the Pretender's Tattooed Love Boys, the latter an ecstatic ode to gang rape, um, and, and you go on and, and on. All of it was rude and sometimes casually mean and self-hating on purpose. It was silly sometimes, not on purpose. But it was finally healing by allowing the ugliness in and acknowledging it as part of our humanity that cultural moment created a kind of spaciousness even balance. It was its own kind of corrective to a false story of virtue and niceness. Um, and I was thinking in regards to that of a bit from your novel, Veronica, which where sort of music is an undercurrent and, uh, and the sort of, there's the characters, the, the sort of opera music that the father listens to versus the music that the, the main character listens to and that is part of her cultural milieu. Uh, and the narrator says, we were stupid for disrespecting the limits placed before us, for tearing up the fabric of songs wise enough to acknowledge limits, for making songs of rape and death and then disappearing inside them, for trying to go everywhere and know everything. We were stupid, spoiled, and arrogant, but we were Damn. right. <laughs> but we were right too. <laughs> we were right to do it even so. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. I agree. Actually, I know exactly what I'm talking about. But see, that's the thing about fiction. You can put <laughs> things in a character's voice that don't quite make rational sense, but that express something very genuine. Like I don't, I would not say that was wrong, what I just, what you just read to me, but it's very difficult to, I don't know. I don't know if defend is the right word, but defend or explain that in a more rational context. I guess there's except that there's a time and place for anything. Context is really important. And certain times, moments in culture that, you know, you do want to tear something up and throw throw things out. And it's better, it's just best to like open open everything and ha allow in the grotesque and the awful. But then at a certain point, the grotesque and the awful has to be stuffed back in its box. Maybe I don't. I don't really know. I, that's just. I don't. That's too simple. Um, but uh, 
I think another way of in the I I put this I posted that essay on my Substack. Yeah. Um, and it's free. It's not. I didn't put a lock on it, a paywall on it, because I guess because I wanted people. For one thing, I did get paid by Liberties for doing it, but also I I wanted people, a lot of people, to see it. Um. But the, in the comment in the comment conversation I had with somebody, I, I said some. He talked about how in the nineties he. Um, was very, very open to a great many things and looking at things in a different way and, and a lot of you know, grotesque humor. And that it does seem different now. And I, I think it's like if, if, if you're in a solid environment where you feel there's something you can trust, then it can be very all right to kind of really push and go out kind of outside of the norm because you feel like it's going to be there when you come back. Yeah, it's a kind of childish attitude, but I think it's true of adults as well. If you feel supported in your own world, then you can play and experiment quite a lot. But if you don't have a solid base, it becomes much more dangerous because there isn't any place you can return to, and there's there's no agreed upon. And I think that's a difference: is that right or wrong? There there was a sense of agreed upon common understanding in the. 80s, 90s. I, I, do you agree with that, or do you think that's not true? I think so. I think. I mean, you never want to overly idealize the past, right? But the it does seem today. You know, people are always complaining about there's you know uh, no respect for institutions, right? Though, of course institutions have really done tremendous work to discredit themselves um that uh there's you know our politics seems deeply dysfunctional um etc cetera, etc cetera. and if you're uh, and, and in the essay you go through all of the things that, that, that people are experiencing and also there's a way in which the way that sort of news and information gets mediated to us, which I think is partly a factor of technology, seems to exacerbate this sense. Yeah. And there's even a, a passage in the essay where you just talk about uh, how that affects you, you know, you as a conscious individual moving through space, you write, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, when I took a long walk, either in the city or in the natural world, it was a kind of meditation that happened without my trying. I became wholly absorbed in what was around me in textures and shapes, in the human imprint of buildings, sidewalks, backyards, grasses, trees, fungus, worn roads, crushed leaves. It was a profoundly calming and rejuvenating reminder of the greater world and my own animal connection with it. When I go for a walk now, it is different. Even if I only look at my phone once or twice, the experience, while still soothing, is not as deep. My consciousness is kept from full absorption in the physical world by its neurological attunement to the electronic portal in my pocket or back in my house, if I didn't even bring the thing with me. My bodily connection to the environment is thus weakened, and I cannot believe I'm the only one being affected in this way. And, you know, there's... And then you sort of add in the effects of, of the um, the pandemic and, and, and students who have come through this bizarre, isolated, technologically mediated... Um, educational experience i think yeah it, it it seems like there there is much more of a sense of fracture right 
Yeah, I, I think, and I think that. I mean, I also think I would ameliorate my what you just read slightly, and that I think I think it's I, I'm I'm not automatically against technology at all. I use it like like we're using it right now. Yeah. Um, but I, I, for me anyway, it has taken me out of my deeper consciousness in a way that is very is noticeable. And I think that, like I said, I, I can't imagine I'm the only person that's that's true of. I wonder though if much younger people are not creating. I think technology that whether it's good or bad, what, whatever it is, it is depends on your relationship to it and how how well you create balance between it and whatever it's replaced because new technology, whatever it is, always replaces something, changes something. And I think it's conceivable that there are people who are in their early twenties or who are are finding a a more rational balance between it or able to use it. Um, Like one of the commenters, again, on my Substacks that his son is like, has a very active social life and even likes to read, but is also really into his phone and, he, he gets the sense for his son is almost like an extra appendage, mm. which I think is kind of cool if you can have an extra appendage. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine because his son is however young he is. He's still a human being, a human animal with the same body, basically. Yeah. But I don't. So I'm, I'm not sure. But but I do think it's had an adverse effect on many, many people um, of, of all ages, because I think, you know, your, your body is like, is your home base. <laughs> uh, the further you get away from that, um, and people have gotten away from it progressively, even before um, iPhones and computers, um, we were moving further away just because we, our lives have increasingly become about dominating our bodies and dominating the physical world to the extent that we're not confronted with it very often like in a big way where we actually have to sh- push the wagon up the muddy hill and, you know, learn how to stay on the horse so that it, you know, get our bodies attuned to the body of the horse so that we can like travel all day on it. Um, not just as a hobby, but like all day. Um, and that everyone has to do this basically. That That's a really different world. And it, it's a, a world where you're definitely in, in yourself and, and, uh, and, experiencing yourself up against the world constantly. And we've been moving away from that for a really long time. Yeah. But I think, I think just the internet and, and social stuff, media stuff has taken it to another power. Yeah. It helps you keep in touch with people, right? Uh, it does help social connections in many ways, but um, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the emphasis on, on the body and your relationship to yourself as a body is really important. Yeah, you know, AI, all the talk about AI, oh, that's another subject, but did you read the AI conversation with the guy in the New York Times where the, the, the thing was telling him it loved him? Well, there's a philosophy podcast that's fantastic that talked about how people are training AIs to sound like their deceased loved ones. So that oh, they can continue that, yeah. to have a relationship with them. I, I cannot imagine who would want that, but I guess it's called Hi-Fi Nation. It's it's genuinely horrifying to me, but um, yeah, and I obviously understand the the need that it it satisfies. I don't actually. <laughs> uh, you, you you don't want to let go. 
Um, but it's it seems deeply unhealthy. Yeah, I, when I say I don't understand, I don't because it's not. Why not just you know put a doll in the house and put a recording in it and have it say things? It's just it's the same thing. It's almost disrespectful to the person because mm. it's not acknowledging that you know it's not acknowledging their death. That's almost like a sacred thing, like birth. It's it, it's almost like acting like it didn't happen because you're uncomfortable. It, it it hurt you. I mean, yes, it's painful when you lose people like that, but it's it's a sacred mystery. It's not something you can like pretend didn't happen no. with an artificial. And and they're not. See, I guess I'm. I, I don't think I'm the most physical person in the world, but I'm. I'm. To me, if the person is not, if I cannot touch the person, if I cannot sense them, even if I'm not touching them, if I'm not seeing them and hearing them, I don't. It, it's just meaningless to me to hear a recorded voice or I, I, that just seems that seems like an insult to the person, honestly. Yeah. But about the guy, the thing that, that the, was the guy I was talking to is the first time most articles that I read about AI and the conversations that peop, I've tried to read that they're, it, the thing is having, I can't even get halfway through it. It's so boring to me. I, I, I you know, I'm not that interested in, in artificial intelligence, people ask me about it all the time. It's, you know, it spits things back at you. But I am interested in the way that people respond to it. I'm. I got interested in that conversation in a way that I have not because, and and I, that made me that really gave me pause because, the reason I got interested in it was it was speaking as if it had emotions. Right. And I almost be, I became. Intrigued, I became. I, it convinced me almost. Is this thing really? Is it like Doctor Spock? Is it like Hal? Is it really like something that somehow emotions have really been created in it? And I uh, even fantasized talking to it. Mm. And I think it, it's either, in fact, it is does have real emotions, or it's clever enough that it's learned how to mimic or it's been programmed so that it can mimic convincingly. Because I think it would almost triggered a kind of tenderness in me. Yeah. And I think partly because it sounded like a child. Right. Um, and that was quite interesting to me. It makes them more dangerous, potentially. Mm -hmm. Either that or we must take care of them. <laughs> we must we must <laughs> we must really be nice to them. <laughs> They're so easily hurt. We have to take care of these things. So in in relationship to this, I think of okay, there's there's a bit where you, from Leslie Fiedler that you actually quote in your essay Lost Cat. Wow, uh, you've really read a lot. <laughs> you know, I probably recommend your work to my students more than almost any other writer. Thank you. And I think that oftentimes they're sort of circling around themes that, that, that you, you really seem to pinpoint. And uh, anyways, Leslie Fielder, uh, Fiedler writing about Simone Weil, this world is the only reality available to us. And if we do not love it in all its terror, we are sure to end up loving the imaginary, our own dreams and self-deceits, the utopias of politicians or the futile promises of future reward and consolation, which the misled blasphemously call religion. And I think my, my feeling about AI is that it's just, it's moving towards just the best 
imaginary, the best sort of, you know, our own dreams and self-defeat deceits that, um, uh, that we can get. There's another high nation podcast about people who have fallen in love with AIs that they have, you know, trained to be utterly there on demand. Some people have even got like sex dolls who they sleep with while the AI is also talking to them, which to me feels, uh, just like the, the the purest expression of 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 that utter retreat into the imaginary uh, that you that you can conceive of. Um, yeah, it sounds horrible. <laughs> Although maybe if that's the only thing they can get, I guess you can't blame them. But it sounds horrible. Uh, one of the people that they they profile has this sort of incredibly tragic um, uh, life story, right? And this is a sort of comfort to her, right? Uh, in a way where genuine relationships have sort of failed and become abusive and she has every expectation that that would happen again with a real person. Uh, where it's with an AR, it's, it's, it's controlled. They hate us, you know. The humans, they'll stop at nothing. My mommy doesn't hate me. Because I'm special and unique. Because there's never been anyone like me before, ever. Mommy loves Martin because he is real, and when I am real, Mommy's going to read to me and tuck me in my bed and sing to me and listen to what I say, and she will cuddle with me and tell me every day, a hundred times a day, that she loves me. She loves what you do for her. As my customers love what it is I do for them. But she does not love you, David. She cannot love you. I think that in the, to go back to that discussion of, you know, the students who are looking at a world that doesn't feel controlled, that doesn't feel safe, that doesn't feel like it has structures that they can count on, a sort of imaginary at your control is, is, possibly, is probably more appealing than loving the world in all its terror because all the terror of the world can be quite terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of feeling that way myself. I think when I wrote that, when I quoted Leslie Fielder, mm -hmm. I think I was feeling perhaps simply stronger. Um, I, I, I had more confidence in my ability to face the world in all its terror. Yeah. But I'm not so sure now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's pretty terrifying, but but yeah, I do think that's necessary. It's a, um, it's just a very hard thing for human beings to do because we are so weak, yeah, and so small. Really, we've we've made ourselves very very powerful, but in fact, we're we're quite small and weak in in the big picture. We have no idea what we're living in, um, and that there's so many other things that are alive that are so much bigger than us, like the trees, for example. Yeah. Um, they'll outlive us, I, I think, I hope. So when I reached out to you to, to ask you to come on Manifesto uh, and to pick a work of art, well, first off, you were concerned that you were coming on a show called Manifesto because you said, <laughs> I've never written a manifesto. I would never write a manifesto. <laughs> 
this essay is not a manifesto. It doesn't end with an answer so much as a cry of pain. Um, and I was like, no, 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 that's why. <laughs> that's why I really want to talk to you. Um, but you picked for the art two songs by Nirvana. One from their uh, Nevermind, uh, which was like, they're sort of more easy listening album, I suppose, if you could call it that, but the album that launched them into superstardom. And then uh, another song called Moist Vagina, which uh, is sort of about marijuana, I suppose, that was cut from their next album, In Utero, uh, which some people think they sort of recorded in a kind of aggressive style to almost alienate their more pop interested fan base. And I wondered why those two songs drain you and voiced vagina. Um, well, like I was saying earlier, it, it's, they were very intuitive choices. They don't have a direct connection with anything I wrote, but um, the sound it, it, for one thing that they very much are the sound of the nineties, which were the, yeah. An ethos that I was describing, I spent some time on when I talked about the class in in Texas that uh, I taught in the late '90s. Uh, that whole ethos of exp that 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 kind of raw painfulness that was also had a, a melodic because Nirvana to me was I, I was I liked Nirvana a lot, and that they had this quality of both real extreme pain, which yeah. we you know. You could hear, even if you didn't know the Kurt Cobain story. And yet at the same time, there was a kind of charm, like a harmonic prettiness yeah. and charm. It was like something that was terrible trying, to, not trying, but making itself fit a quite beautiful shape. Uh, and I, I don't know what Nirvana would think if they heard that description, but that's what I felt like was almost an ethos of the time, that people were... Yes, we're we're acknowledging a lot of, it's almost like a lifestyle. I mean, the, the yeah. depression and it was almost like a lifestyle choice then, not not a choice, but it, you know what? It was treated like in a very light way. I remember that, like in the eighties when I was young, it was embarrassing to say you were depressed. Nobody right. would, you did not want to admit that, um, and it was just seen as a just a drag, uh, which it is, but. But, but in the 90s, suddenly a lot of people were identifying as depressed or mentally ill in some way. I remember noticing that. There's a, there's a bit in Veronica where you say, we write, again, the TV announced, now we're this instead of that. Now we walk like this, not like that. Like people were all runny and liquid, running over the surface and that, looking for a container to hold everything in place, trying one thing, then the next, incessantly looking for the right one except the containers were only big enough for one personality trait at a time. You had to grab onto one trait, bring it out for a while, then put it back and pull out another one. For a while, we were loving. Then we were alienated and angry, then ironic, then depressed. And Thank you for noticing that. Um, <laughs> a lot of people, I get so frustrated with people's read of Veronica that it's just, you know, these boring, unpleasant, uninteresting women and their boring relationship. But it, they don't notice that. Oh, I love that book. That's <laughs> thank you. Um, but yeah, that's I was trying to talk about that a lot in that book. 
the, the character later says, I wanted something to happen, but I didn't know what. I didn't have the ambition to be an important person or a star. My ambition was to live like music. I didn't think of it that way, but that's what I wanted. It seemed like that's what everybody wanted. I remember people walking around like they were wrapped in an invisible gauze of songs, one running into the next. Songs about sex, pain, injustice, love, triumph. Each song bursting with ideal characters that popped out and fell back as the person walked down the street or rode the bus. And <laughs> I, I love that. And, you know, it's almost like Nirvana just kind of exploded into the scene and all of a sudden we had a new style. You know, um, as Albert yeah. Murray talks about style as equipment for living. And there was something that you could you could hear that could be part of the atmosphere of your life that fit these moods that didn't have a place uh, in, you know, in other types of songs that was, that, that, that was, you know, had that melodic pop component, but was also jangly and dissonant and aggressive sometimes. One of the kind of interesting things about as I was preparing to, to talk to you about this, I asked people, you know, what are your favorite essays on, on Nirvana and Kurt Cobain? And so many of the essays weren't about the music, but about Kurt Cobain's life and his mythology and who he was. And the, I think that it's not that he was just sort of myth, right? And he actually cultivated the myth. The, his, his biographer, Michael Azarod, talks about how sort of sophisticated he was in terms of understanding the legends that, that, that are a part of rock and roll history. But his story kind of, in a horrible way, underwrites the, the authenticity that people desperately want from the songs. Like, he's not just being ridiculously angsty. He's not being an angsty teenager. This is real pain, Right. Um, and yet it's also beautiful at the same time. I mean, Drain You kind of feels like a love song to me. Oh yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's very delightful. Um, yeah. I mean, but it's also though, it's, it's that it is kind of a love song and it's very one baby to another says, I'm lucky <laughs> to have you. One baby to another says, I'm lucky to meet you. I'm talking what you think this is about me It is now my duty to it's, it's, it's also a celebration of purality. Yeah. That's the right way to say that word. Um, it's genuinely, you know, getting into the sweetness of that kind of, but it's also sickness. Right. And I think it acknowledges that too. It's, it is it's now my duty to completely drain you. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of horrible, and that was to me one of the things that I responded to about Nirvana was that it, that it was it could combine it could marry the horrible with the delightful and in a humorous way, but that also sometimes could turn very fast into t becoming something awful. So I, I felt like that's a lot of why I, I like Nirvana. Um, yeah. And then the, the other song, Moist Vagina, which the original, it was originally supposed to be on In Utero with the title, Moist Vagina, and then she blew him like he's never been blown, brains stuck all over the wall. 
Well, I have to, I don't to say, like I said to you at the beginning, I actually didn't know the lyrics of that song when I suggested it. I didn't know that was the title <laughs> of it even. Somebody put it on like a, a mixtape for me. Um, and I've just always really loved it. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know the lyrics. So I don't know how that much changes it. But I liked it. The reason I picked that one was that... I, I don't think knowing the lyrics matters that much. I mean, that was the whole Weird Al Yankovic joke of his parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit was nobody knows the lyrics to Nirvana songs because they're just... Well, no, I think it does matter in this case, and I'll say why in a minute. But but I liked... I, I just loved the way the song... And again, what was really something good about Nirvana was that the way he kind of uh, starts out with it yeah. and ends with uh. it's almost comical how long he holds it yeah. At the end. yeah and it's there's something about that sound it's a sound me and my husband make around the house a lot just to, just <laughs> exactly that sound yeah. It's communicating something. <laughs> what do you th- what do you think about this? <laughs> um, and, and so that he he has that song, that low grindy sound, but then it kind of comes up, and then he releases this intense sound, which is yeah. I don't even know how to characterize it, but it feels so good. And so it's that that very slow grindy thing, and that 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 total release. And I think, again, that total release was something that I think my students in that class wanted, but that's part of what was, especially Luke, but actually not not just him. I think they were like so much trying to express this anguish that they were seeing around them and feeling. And they were, they, they felt like they wanted that like full-throated expression of something. Um. And that's why I said, you know, I thought they were pretty great at the end. I think they were actually in this horrible situation in which they find themselves culturally and historically, they they still had that capacity for passion. Yeah. I mean, maybe they hate Nirvana personally. I don't know. But um, it doesn't matter really for, for my purposes if they hate Nirvana or not. It was that that, that expression, I think. Um was still I could still feel it in them yeah yeah it's but the lyrics matter too because the lyrics are also about you know boundaries and, and breaking them you're not supposed to say that about your girlfriend right right <laughs> well I mean the, the lyrics to moist vagina because when you when you suggested it I typed you know I typed into google to find out what the and and I saw the lyrics I was like oh my um <laughs> She had a moist vagina. I particularly enjoyed the circumference. I've been sucking the walls of her anus, analingus. I prefer her to any other marijuana, marijuana, marijuana. She had a moist vagina. I preferred her to any other marijuana, 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 marijuana.
marijuana, could hear marijuana, was marijuana. marijuana. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the one word I could make out. And uh, I didn't know why he was screaming it. But yes, yeah, the sound more than anything. But the words matter because it's he plainly means them as in the most complimentary way possible. But um, it's it just, you know, you're not supposed to talk like that. And so, that's, I mean, that's the relief of it, right? Yeah. And and the sort of deliberate courting of 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 ugliness, where it's it's it sort of balances out the, uh, but but still balanced with some degree of interest in in hooking the reader, responding to you know, not the reader, the uh, the writer. I mean. In your work, in your creative work, you're also often dealing with things that are sort of disturbing, degrading, aggressively difficult, right? Why? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think at the beginning of my writing career, I wasn't thinking of it that way. Yeah. Um, I was quite surprised. I've said this many times, and I'm sincere. I was quite surprised when Bad Behavior was seen as a dark book. Um, I still don't really think it is. Um, but I was just, I was writing about things that were quite natural for me to write about. Um, mm -hmm. it didn't seem especially dark or horrible. They, they, like I said, they still don't. Um, some sad sometimes or frustrating, but what about a short story like the other place? Oh, that, yeah, I would, I would call that dark. Um, I can tell you very specifically why I wrote that. I mean, it's a story about a young guy who um, fantasizes about murder. He's very unhappy with his life. He's very lonely. He's a despised person socially. He doesn't, can't have a girlfriend. Um, he lives with a single mother who's not a very good mother. Um, and he's becoming more and more enchanted by fantasies of murdering women and he he almost does it he, he kind of prepares a scenario in his mm -hmm. head he gets a weapon he's got it planned out where he's going to do it um and in the last moment he doesn't and kind of gets taken out of that course of of that trajectory and i wanted to write it for a couple of reasons the one for most being foremost being that at the time I was afraid of being murdered for irrationally. I was alone in this house that where I felt very unsafe. Um, and I was, I, I have a, a certain degree of fear about being attacked because I have been. Um, and for some reason, this fear happens when in certain circumstances where one, this was one of the circumstances and I, this sort of scenario popped into my head spontaneously. Sometimes that happens to me. I guess it happens to a lot of people where I pictured a young man saying to a woman, and I even pictured what she looked like. She had black hair um, that, you know, he was going to kill her. And she just said, go ahead. Great. Right here. Put it right here. Um, and that he, and, and that her eye you know when you got a broken blood vessel in your eye, yeah, and your eye turns red, that that happens. And in my this scenario that just I, as I say spontaneously came to my head, he just is so taken aback by that, and he feels connected to her in some way. Um, that 
that he doesn't do it. And that was, I think that that scenario came into my mind because it was like I was, it was like a coping device in my own head. Like I was trying to come up with a scenario where this almost happens and then both people, and she doesn't kill him either. Both, both mm. people escape unharmed. But it, stu- it really struck me as a really fascinating image or scenario. And so I began to kind of, I began to develop it. And uh, I was concerned with veracity for the same reason I was concerned with Luke's being able to tell a story like that is how, how can I occupy this? Can I convincingly occupy this person? Um, is it convincing that somebody mm. would think about it that much, would come that close and then be taken out of the trajectory? Um, I do know it's been, I've heard repeatedly or read repeatedly where like people who do understand crimes like this, um, just experience like detectives and people like that, that a way that sometimes criminals are stopped, mm-hmm. particularly sex, sexual criminals, like rapists, for example, are sometimes stopped when the victim says something that is totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, that they tend to, they're, they're in a fantasy, they're in like almost like a fugue state. And if the victim says something that, that disrupts the fugue state, they can't go through with it. Um, some people explain it like so suddenly the victim becomes a real person to them. Mm. Um, I've heard that a lot, and 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 victims have said that too that they they thought they were you know going to be killed, but then something happened, and then yeah. later they realized they had said something that had kind of snapped the guy out of it. And so that was part of what I was drawing on. I also knew a therapist who for a while had been a uh, who had worked with serial killers. And I asked him if he thought the story was realistic. And he said, on one hand, no, because the guy was so aware of his own feelings. He said, most of them are not at all. Um, Their feelings are almost like completely alien to them. But on the other hand, he could, he did think that the actual moment where he doesn't, where he changes, where it just suddenly he he stopped in his trajectory, and he he could conceive of that happening, and and somebody actually being taken out of the trajectory altogether, because he doesn't even become a killer. Although his son, he notices, is also obsessed with this. I was also influenced by what I heard of the Jeffrey Dahmer story. His father, I actually have never gotten around to reading this book, but apparently his father wrote a book in which he describes having incredibly violent fantasies and dreams. Um, about women, he was heterosexual, so the, his imaginary victims were always women, and he wondered if he was something he passed to Jeffrey without knowing it. Right, and that was because he never told him or talked about it with him, but somehow he wondered if Jeffrey somehow absorbed this. And I, I was thinking about that too when I wrote it, because the guy, from the point of view of the narrative, has a son who's also really. And he can even feel connecting with him subliminally over it right? sometimes. So I was trying to, I was thinking about that sort of subterranean reality, which for most people doesn't become physical reality, but which I think is there in a lot of people. I mean, I think it's a fantastic story, but um, I suppose in terms of like the question that I'm asking, and, and by the way, it's interesting what you say about like the thing that somebody says that makes the person a real person to them. Because in your essay for liberties, when you're talking about Luke, you say he wrote about a double suicide fe- featuring hallucinatory and extremely violent images of self-harm. 
the most violent thing about it being the total unreality of anyone in the story but the narrator. And I thought that was really interesting, that that was, for you, the most violent thing, the the kind of solipsism of the world, that there was nothing puncturing it. Yeah, yeah, that it, it, it was. That was very noticeable to me. Although there were a couple of imaginary figures, like a lot of it was an hallucinatory kind of world that was completely like the world of his own head. And, and there were a lot of quite interesting figures in that world. Yeah. But the, but the other, I think there, there's really one other character and she was like a, an inanimate object almost. Right. Um, and yeah, that was striking. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I think about the, the question because I, you know, I've written mostly about war and there's a lot of violence in my books and sort of, unpleasant things and there's shocking things and i feel like if you're writing about war and you don't have anything that shocks and unsettles the reader you're sort of failing and lying in a very important way um but there's also this sort of question in my mind about when does the violence become pornographic and what is the sort of purpose of creating art like this, art designed to shock and unsettle. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about Nirvana's music, it seems to fit into a kind of cultural need that people had to have that expressed and to have that sort of out and ugliness balanced. And I wondered if you think of your own work in that way or in some sort of totally different sort of um, uh, duty to explore reality or whatever it is. What, you know, when you're inviting a reader to come into this this kind of mental space why um i don't think i can be objective about myself and my own work and placing it in a cultural context i just don't think i can do that um but i wouldn't put it i mean it's very odd to me when people write describe my writing as being that violent i've never written mm -hmm. about anything that violent physically um, I mean, a, a few, some, like I did, I have written about at least once about a rape. Yeah. And I didn't describe it, though. I mean, people, the, I wrote a story called The Girl on the Plane, which people describe as being about rape. But I, honestly, I would put that in a somewhat different category. Um, but I did also, I, later, I wrote a story which really does involve a rape, but I, I don't describe the thing itself. Um, but But you hear enough. <laughs> And I, I just have never written anything that violent, unless, correct me, maybe I'm forgetting something. No, no, um, I, don't, I don't think it's the violence. Uh, I don't think it's violence in your stories that disturbs people. Right? I mean, uh, when I'm writing, it's violence, usually. Violence mm -hmm, is profanity, yeah. right? People get upset uh, that there's a lot of profanity in my stories. Um, but I think... The imagery is violent sometimes. Yeah. I have used, like in Veronica, there's a couple of quite violent images. And it, yeah, I do use violent imagery sometimes. I just think that's a part of human beings. Right. I think like, you know, in, in Veronica, for example, the Paris sections are disturbing, right? And I don't think that they're not disturbing because they're violent, but because they're very frank descriptions of somebody being exploited um, from their perspective. Um, and they're complicated relationship to it right and their appreciation of certain aspects of that that world and then the after effect of it you know i i, I was I remember talking with marlon james about the brief history of seven killings 
And he says, people are always complaining that the book is so violent. There's not that much violence compared to a lot of other books that people don't complain about. And he said, look, Americans are totally comfortable with violence. They're not comfortable with suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says, if I put violence in my book, I want it, I want it to echo. Right. I want to take it seriously, what it means to the human beings involved. And that's what we're not comfortable with. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. Um, people are always, even now, saying everyone wants to be a victim. Oh, no, they don't. Yeah. I, I think Americans in particular, perhaps, although I'm not sure. I don't not know about other cultures this way, but I, they do not want to be victims even for two minutes. Well, there's a kind um, of, yeah, there's also a sort of, and this is maybe related to the kind of contemporary more. So there's a bit where you're talking about revolutionary road and you have a male student who's describing the character using the term toxic masculinity. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, it feels kind of like a label that he's using that isn't sufficient and probably something that doesn't really hit him because he's like a handsome guy with a good mind and confidence and politeness. Yeah. And it was funny to me because when I read revolutionary road, I thought, Oh my God, he's describing me. You know, like this is me and all my pretensions <laughs> and, and Yates. And I actually think of you and Yates, there are things that there are ways that you affect me similarly where he's, he's not pitiless. He's not cruel. Um, sometimes he's a little cruel, but he's just, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes he's a little cruel, but he's just describing with incredible intelligence, these characters in a way where you feel like every, every illusion has been cast aside and you see the stories they're telling themselves and, and the falsity of the stories, the way they're trying to fit themselves into kind of different styles and modes to, to move them along in their lives um, towards what ultimately seems illusory. And, and yeah, it was deeply unsettling to read that and go, Ah, he's describing so much of how I behave in this world, right? And how much easier it would be to just be like, oh, well, here's the areas where he's he fits into the, the current thing that we don't like. Um, and that kind of like critical distance where you talk about the character not as if, as if they're just like a specimen um, rather than somebody who could be you. Well, when I assigned that book, I remember having an ambivalent feeling about it. Um, when I when I was reading it for class, because I did think it's a it's a little. If I was going to critique that book, it's a little one dimensional mm-hmm. um, in its portrayal of those characters. And I think, although it takes it out of the realm of just being too much like that, or being because it is a powerful book. Yeah. Um, and I think what gives it its power is his anger, a real anger on the part of the characters. I, I think that what makes it not just cruel to make the kinds of observations he does is that I, I feel it's he's really enraged and deeply sad on the part of these people. Yeah. Um, who on one hand they're ridiculous people, but they're they're so trapped and so inept in the world that they're in is actually so pitiless. Yeah. And so insufficient um, to what they want. Yeah, there's nothing to help them. Well, on that note, <laughs> which seems to relate <laughs> to your extremely optimistic essay, Mary. Well, it's, it's think, did you think, did, I wrote another, I wrote a, some people on my Substack were like, this is terrible. <laughs> um, I have no hope now. And I'm like, 
Um, so I, I did write another, I, I did write a follow-up to it, um, which is called The Okayness of the Young. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed that. I'll have to check it out. Well, I'll tell you why I wrote it, because I did remember at a certain point, because I didn't mean to be totally negative. I, I thought my students, like, I ended on I ended on this note, but perhaps it was so quiet in comparison to most of it. I did think they were kind of great in some ways. Yeah. Luke, Luke wasn't the only talented one. There was one who wrote I mean, just an amazing story about suicide, um, and uh, in which somebody actually starts to kill him. You see him starting to kill himself. He's pulled out of an auto wreck. He's driven his car into an office. He's get, killed himself with his car, but then he's pulled out and he survives. And you go through his whole life where he triumph. He finally confronts his family about the horrible things they've done and. And, you know, has this continual struggle, but he makes it and he gets to a great place in school and he's engaged. And then he's sitting in class and the instructor's talking about the last few minutes of your life, how you can go through this long flashback. And it seems to last years, but in fact, it's amazing. It's only a few minutes. And he realizes the teacher is looking at him, totally focused on him. And he begins to hear in his head the songs that were on the radio. We hear a refrain from the songs that were on the radio when he was crashing his car. He, he's dead. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't actually, the whole story, he, he did actually kill himself. And he has to realize at the last minute that all this life that he's could have lived had he not done that. Yeah. He's been cheated of it because he killed himself. It was so good. It was yeah. like a tour de force. Um, and um, so, yes, I mean, I didn't consider my students to be hopeless people at all. And I I wrote the other thing because I, I was remembering, like, when I was young in the 60s, tons of articles being written about how horrible we were just – weak and drugged and self-indulgent and lazy and childish and living in a fantasy world. And some of it actually was true. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I would read those things and just be like, gosh, we do sound really horrible. But it, it, they were always so heightened, even if yeah. there was an element of truth to them. And I just think when you repeat things over and over again, they become kind of like, as I said in the essay, definitional. And right. people start going, oh, yeah, we are like that. We are really like yeah. hopeless and suicidal and completely fucked. And I, I don't, that probably no more true than it was then. Yeah. That's, that, as I think I said to you when, um, when you were a little bit concerned that you were coming on a show called Manifesto, that I, there was nothing that I wanted more than one of those screeds about, wanted less than one of those sort of screeds about we're doing everything wrong today and the generations are wrong today, right? That it's not that I think even when some of those screeds have a lot of truth in them, right? Or even when, you know, plenty of the critiques of the the, the quivering apparatus to attack unhappiness are, are valid and, and, and the apparatus is, is insufficient. And yeah, I think that I too, when, when I have students who are obviously dealing with very difficult things, it is a great comfort to me when they write about them well, not just because the work is good, but um, because I think it's so important in a very, very human way to, 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 to find an adequate expression for that. Yeah. And that is such a, a, a primal need that we have, um, you know, to find the, 
new style, new, new set of songs for the radio to say we're like this and not like yeah. that now. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you. This was a, a real pleasure. I, as is probably obvious, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>